Hi, everybody. David Noor back with you for another episode of the Curvebenders Live. I'm elated to be joined by none other than Dr. Ruth. Not for our audience. Don't get excited. It's not that Dr. Ruth. It's another fabulous Dr. Ruth. And uh, Ruth, welcome. Thank you so much. And I do love the original. She's great. <laughs> She yeah. was a she was a firecracker, wasn't she? She still is. She still it. is. <laughs> I love it. She, that woman is just something else. And so talk about the shock factor so many years ago where her area of expertise for audience, if you know who Dr. Ruth is, uh Ruth, do you remember she was like like five feet tall or something? Not right? even. She's five feet with with heels on. Right. And her, <laughs> and her specialty was sexuality. And and she was a sex therapist. And she would openly get on um all kinds of talk shows back in what eighties and nineties. Yeah, talk about your sexual very openly when no when this wasn't done, right? That's so, right. Here's another Dr. Ruth that's that's paving new ways. But but you know we have I have a lot in common with her though because and I told her this because we we've met and we both were in our forties when we got our doctorate. We both got our doctorate from the same institution, from Columbia University's Teachers College. We're both bilingual in the same languages, but only one of us is a trained sniper. <laughs> and everyone listening is going to have to Google that now. Right? You got to find out who, in fact, is, it is, is that skill. Dr. Ruth Gotian or Dr. Ruth Westheimer? One of them. Right? One of them. So on that note, would for those that may not know as much about you, would you kindly start uh, your background, personal, professional background, just kind of get us up to speed of how you've gotten here? So I'm not a sex therapist. <laughs> we can start with that. Um, I actually started my career in finance and international banking. Both my bachelor's and master's were in business. And I realized just because you're good at something doesn't mean you love it and doesn't mean you enjoy doing it. And I wanted to work back with students, but students who had a lot to lose, really. They were super high achievers. And I ran what's called an MD-PhD program. These are the students who have the dual MD and PhD degree, and they get both degrees simultaneously. So I ran that cradle to grave for 22 years, recruitment, admissions, operations, crisis management, budgets, grants, alumni affairs, marketing, you name it, my team and I did it. Mm. And uh, as I said at the beginning, at the age of 43, I went back to school while still working and got my doctorate. I studied adult learning and leadership, really started taking a deep dive into success because not unlike the great resignation we have now, nationally, there's a shortage of physician scientists, those who do the MD and do research. And everyone was worried about retention and worried about those who are leaving. We called it the leaky pipeline. And I was always more fascinated with the other end of the spectrum. Those whose work is so incredible that I wondered what if we can make more of those people? Mm. And I was always drawn to those people. And that's what I started studying. And it started with studying the most successful physician scientists of our generation. And then I haven't stopped studying successful people since. I love that. I love that. So uh, give us a glimpse into your role today. What do you do day in and day out? What keeps you busy? So after I did that, I became assistant dean for mentoring, and I designed and launched a mentoring academy. And now I am chief learning officer in anesthesiology at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York, where my job is to make people successful. So 
I do all of that, use all of my leadership development background, um, do all of that. And I also write about success. So I, I studied and I, I wrote the book. I love it. So I wrote so the book, The Success Factor. <laughs> what we're going to talk a lot about. And it seems like your background and your role has been a, a very logical yeah. kind of stair step to the book. So, so uh, you and I briefly were involved with Thinkers 50, you at a different level, but we we're involved with Thinkers 50 and the radar. And, and I think in our last conversation, you mentioned you're genuinely curious about this topic. So tell us where the book idea came from. How did you, how did you kind of put this idea together? So it was really, um, once I started seeing the four elements of success, which I started seeing in my doctoral dissertation work, when I then started seeing that other extreme high achievers have it, I realized that they're all the same, the same four elements that they're doing, which means the scientist is just like the Olympian. And if that's the case, these are learned skills. And if they're learned skills, I'm an adult educator, I can teach it. So. Um, and, and I know this will really resonate with you, but um, early in the pandemic, my dad was in the hospital. And as I sat by his bedside working, he would always ask me, are you getting ideas for your next book? And my dad was in the hospital. I wasn't thinking about my next book. So um, shortly after he passed away, a publisher reached out to me. Mm. And I remember thinking, this is my dad saying, you've got to do this. And the book came out on the 17-month anniversary of his funeral. So I'm sorry for your loss, but I love that you've got, you've got a, you know, his life. You've got a dedication right up front. And, and right. it says a lot about the impact he had on you. So now you've got me curious. Talk to me about the four elements because I'm on the edge of my seat for Dr. Ruth to drop some wisdom on me right here. All right, here we go. You ready? Yes. Okay. The first one is you need to find your passion and purpose, but this is not you find your passion. You never work a day in your life. No, this is not that. This is your calling. This is why you were put on this earth. This is why you wake up in the morning, you bounce out of bed. You cannot quiet your mind at night. You have to do this. You can't not do it. And you know, when you talk to those people who figure that out, I call it their face light up moment. They start talking and they just start shining, right? They, you, you just see a whole change in their demeanor. They're not doing it for the prizes, the medals, the awards, the promotion, the recognition, the diploma. No, that's what we call in adult learning extrinsic motivation. Mm -hmm. It comes from other people, other people judging you. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be judged all day right? And that's really hard to maintain and sustain. Yeah. But when it comes from within, what we call intrinsic motivation, honey, you can judge me all day long. It's not going to make a difference. This is what I am doing. You can call me crazy. You can say it'll never work. I am not stopping because this is what I know I need to do. I love doing it. So let you me ask you a it. question. Let me ask you a question. So, so you and I are passionate about what we do Ruth, you may know this. This is your 20 of my practice. I, I genuinely don't believe any of it. I mean, I, I work my tail off, but it doesn't feel like work because I love what I do, right? right. And, and, and others have said exactly that. You found your calling. You're doing what you're meant to do. Yep. My question of you is, do you believe 
you're born with this or does it you develop it or you stumble on it or how does it, where does it come from? Look, you can be born with all the talent in the world, but if you're binge watching Netflix day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, you're not going to be successful. It's just not going to work. But it's taking these things that you have and learning what to do with it. Everyone's born as a diamond in the rough. And we need to figure out how to make you sparkle. So it's taking that raw material and everybody's got raw material. Everybody's got something they love to do. Everybody. We just need to figure out what that is for each person. Mm. So I love that. So I find my passion. I find my purpose. I'm working my tail off to really shine, make that diamond shine. What's number two? Well, number two is that working your tail off, right? Because if you figured out what it is that you love to do, no one's going to have to push you. You are going to work hard because you love it. And it's not just putting in 18-hour days. That's not sustainable. It's working smarter, not just harder. Learning how to leverage your deep focus time, your peak performance hours. Learning how to overcome challenges. Knowing that it's not a question if you can overcome the challenge. Because high achievers never question if. They focus on how. What is the strategy I haven't considered yet? So it's always, they, they transfer it from the if to the how, and that puts them in control. And there's nothing high achievers love more than control, but they control what they can control. If it's a variable that's not within their control, I'm not worrying about that. Nothing I can do about that. Nothing I can do about the pandemic, but I can control what I do during that pandemic. Just look at all the Olympians who had to train for an extra year because the Olympics were postponed. Most of them did not quit. They stayed on. And that's why. Would you agree a big enabler of you working your tail off is also a genuine sense of curiosity? Yes. Because I'm, if, I'm cur if I'm genuinely curious about not just what's happening, but why and yeah. how and what's the root cause of it and what made that work and this one didn't, I'm much more likely to immerse myself in that topic and around other people that are going to fuel that curiosity. That's right. It's all about, look, intrinsic motivation is all about that fire in your belly. And the work ethic is all about pouring gasoline on that fire mm. to keep it going to keep that curiosity going. You need to have that. You're right. You need to have that curiosity. And what happens is when you start feeding in on that, what happens is you get into a state of flow. And a state of flow is when you are so deeply focused on your work, you're actually more productive, you're happier, and time just sort of melts away. Mm. You're not tired. You're not hungry. You don't need to go to the bathroom. You are so deeply focused on what you're doing. It's hard to get, but if you can get there and get there repeatedly, you will start seeing your success just skyrocket. I think the lamest term is I'm in the groove, right? I've got, I've got my groove on and I'm getting it done. And it's amazing because you, you're right. Time flies and you're like, so so you may know I'm writing the next book. I, I like to write early in the mornings. I'm at this desk 6 a.m. By about 10, I've written 12 pages. And it's because I put the devices away and you're just heads down focused. But I've got to ask you, I have two lovely teenagers mm -hmm. and I equate those uh, in the spring of their careers to teenagers because you see the raw ingredients in them yeah, and you wish it, you hope it, you want it for them. My question yeah. of you is if I have a young 
sales professional. I have a young project manager. I have a young person on my team yeah. who may not have developed that work ethic yet. Do you believe it can be trained? Do you believe it could be developed in someone? Or again, is it innate? Yes. And this is my biggest frustration with performance appraisals. We are so busy aiming for average and that just drives me crazy, right? So let's think of performance appraisals. If they're on a scale of one to five, mm. if you are three, you're average. Great. Meeting expectations. We leave you alone. If you're a four or five, you're a high potential or high achiever. You are exceeding expectations. We leave you alone. What happens if you're below a three, below average? You're not meeting expectations. Well, now you get a corrective action plan. You get a supervisor who checks in with you to hold you accountable that you're meeting milestones. You get sent to courses and workshops to improve your skills. Now, the high achievers are seeing this. And wait. they're saying, <laughs> wait, <laughs> so our goal is to be average. Yeah. I'm out of here. Yeah. And that's why we have retention problems is we're putting our focus on the people who don't want to be there. Now, what if we use those resources on the high potentials, the fours and the high achievers, the fives? If we said, you know, David, what is it that you want to learn? What is the gap in your understanding that you want to fill? Is there a conference I can send you to? Someone I can introduce you to? A course you want to take? What is it you want? What is it that I can help you with? Mm. Oh, no one's ever asked me that before. Right. Right. Yes. Yes. Now, all of a sudden, we're aiming for higher. Now, imagine you start giving these people stretch assignments and, you know, you give them borders and let them play within their borders. Now, what happens? The high achievers are not going to leave because all the attention is going to the low achievers. They're going to start bringing their friends. And who do you think their friends are? Other high achievers. Other high achievers. Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, that baseline of a three, it just got raised. Yeah. I just, I just spoke literally earlier today. I spoke with a leader who, I, and like you, I'm a big believer that a big part of every leader's role is to develop their people and really elevate their skills, their knowledge, their yep. capabilities, their behaviors, right? Yep. And he's identified, obviously he's got his direct reports, but he's identified, and you probably see this, lower level in the organization that yep. doesn't have visibility, sponsorships, you know, yep. uh, mentorship. But unbelievable people that are raising their hands and saying, I want to do more. I want to contribute more. I want to achieve more. I want to, right? And I'm like, go, they're raising their hands. Go love on them. Go elevate. Go enhance. Go amplify. So give our PL leaders who are watching this some tips on, if you could, the first two. Helping someone find their passion and purpose and helping them really elevate their work ethic, their impact, their purposeful work. Give me a couple of tips on, as a manager, as a leader, how do I do that? And that's really great that you asked because the last part three of the book is all about implementation. How do we take these ideas, these elements of success and actually implement them? Mm. Because my frustration with all the leadership books is that they tell you what to do, but they never tell you how to do it. And yeah. I'm an adult educator. I have to teach people how to do it. Yeah. And not only that. So, you know, I, I also created online resources that come with every book. Because when I talk about something, I understand as an adult educator that people don't just want to read it. 
They need to interact with it. Yeah. That's how they're going to learn. And that's why there's all these free downloadable resources. So for example, when I'm talking about intrinsic motivation, and I will tell you what works for you is not going to work for me. And what works for me today is not going to work for me the next time I have a transition in my life, a new job, a move, a new child, a pandemic. So I created for each of the elements a buffet of options you can choose from so that we all have something that'll work. So one of the things, the most popular thing to figure out your intrinsic motivation is to do what's called a passion audit. A passion audit is really to figure out what it is that you are good at, what it is that you are not good at, what is it that you are good at but don't enjoy doing, what you would give away for free if you could, if you could still keep your salary and your title, and what is it that you don't, that you love doing so much, you're probably doing it anyway. And how can you find this out? What are the questions you should be asking? So it's really just a three-column exercise. What are you good at? That's number one. What are you not good at? Or what are you good at and you don't enjoy doing? And what you would do for free if you could? And there's these piercing questions to really get at it. Because you know in our work, we have to peel layers, right? Peel layers one at a time. Love it. So, so similarly, I, I love the down, I love the online resources, love, love the buffet of options. Give us, give us one that you like for, for the work ethic, for really leveraging your kind of peak performance. The peak performance. So, um, here's one that I actually adopted from the Italians and I used it for, uh, during the pandemic in a whole new way. So this is actually, you need to know your peak performance hours. So David, you and I, we are both morning people. We like to work super early in the morning, but you know, you said you, you wake up and you're at your desk at six o'clock and you're writing till 10, 11. Well, you're not sitting at your desk for four or five hours. That's just inhumane, but there's actually something that we call, for example, writing sprints. And anyone who's written a book does these writing sprints, but it's the same thing. Even if you weren't writing a book for any project. You write for a certain period of time, and this is actually called the Pomodoro technique. So you might work for 25 minutes, take a 10-minute break. Work another 25 minutes, another 10-minute break. A third set of 25 minutes and another 10-minute break. After three or four of those Pomodoros, you take a longer break. Now, it seems counterintuitive. What if I just sit there for three hours, I'll be much more productive? No, you won't. Because you will be so exhausted after three hours, you can't work the rest of the day. Yeah, you can't. You can't think. Your your thinking is not as clear. You you do. And and, and in full disclosure, you're right. I don't sit for four hours. I get up and you have to. You grab a coffee. I have got a couch next to my desk. I go and sit and read an article. And but you're right. right. You give your you give your brain. You give your posture a break. But I love that. I love yep. that peak performance. But- But I will tell you, sometimes we need to make adjustments for that. So I realized 25 minutes is not not enough for me because I have a longer on-ramp. Can I share a uh, really fun story? One of my best. And and, and talk about one of those things. I've always believed if I wasn't doing what I'm doing now, I'd like to be an international man of leisure. Because (laughs) one of my books, uh, we went to Positano, Italy. And on a balcony overlooking the ocean, I wrote eight chapters. And it was one of the most peaceful, one of the most serene experiences ever. So again, any of my clients watching, listening, 
You want to ask me to go there and write something for you? I'm in. I'm in tomorrow. I'm on a plane. So <laughs> Ruth, love it. Love, love You know, that. that's so funny. When I was in, in uh, um, getting my doctorate, uh, there's one of the big papers you need to write before you um, get to the um, defense stage. Um, and it's a this 20-page paper. And I was on a cruise with the family. And I sat, did you know cruise ships have libraries? I so I, I, I know, because uh, I sat there many hours watching the whales jump as oh. I was writing this paper. Oh. Got the whole thing done. Right? <laughs> You're just inspired. Like, how can I not with that view, right? <laughs> okay, so we covered we covered two, uh, just as a refresher. One was, one was your intrinsic motivation. The other one was kind of peak performance. Let's mm -hmm. talk about the other two. So we have intrinsic motivation. We have the work ethic. The third one is the strong foundation, which is constantly being reinforced. What worked for you early in your career is going to work later in your career, but you have to always go back to the basics. So for example, for those of you in the United States, you might know the name Neil Katyal. Neil Katyal is an attorney who argued 45 cases before the Supreme Court of the United States more than any other minority lawyer in America. The Supreme Court, for those of you who are outside the U.S., is the highest court in America. Most lawyers don't argue one. He's argued 45. And I said to him, I said, Neil, how do you prepare for these cases? And he said, oh, Ruth, I've been doing the same three things for every single one of the cases. I said, what did you do? Well, he prepared a binder with every question that he might get asked, and he prepared the answers for that every single question. And he said he walks into the courtroom, puts that binder on the table in front of him. And he told me in 45 cases, he's never once opened that binder. But the process of preparing that binder helped prepare him for the case. That's the first thing. The second thing that he's done for every single one of the 45 cases is that he does what's called a moot court. Moot court are simulated court environments. And he told me that he did 15 of them early on in his career. And now he still does them. He doesn't do 15 because he has all this experience. He does five. The point is he's still doing them. Even though he has all this experience of 45 cases, he still does moot courts. And last but certainly not least, if you are one of his children... The bedtime stories the children get the night before the opening arguments are the opening arguments of the case, <laughs> because he said if he can distill the information enough for a child to understand, he can get the court to understand it. And he's done the same practice for every single one of the 45 cases. Strong foundation, constantly being reinforced. Ruth, I got to tell you, that story makes every other excuse any of us ever come up with in terms of how we prepare, yeah. how we show up and how we deliver, yeah. basically a moot point because that's, that's what probably sets them apart from every other attorney that's ever, uh, you know, argued that's a case right. in front of the Supreme Court. That's right. That's right. And it's in examples in every other field as well. Mm. I interviewed Bonnie Blair, who's a long track speed skater. She went up bunch of metal. She's an Olympic champion. Yeah. And at that time, she told me that her biggest competitors were what were then the East Germans. And she said the East Germans, their thighs were like tree trunks. She said, I could go and lift weights all day long. I will never have their power. 
she said, but I wasn't going to beat them on power. I was going to beat them on technique. Mm. So she went back to one of her original coaches and went back to the techniques from early in her career when she first started long track speed skating. That's what made her so good. I've got another one for the audience. Uh, you may know that famed San Francisco 49ers wide receiver Jerry Rice. He mm -hmm. grew up, his dad was a bricklayer, and he grew up helping his dad, right, lay brick, brick walls and yeah. foundations and whatnot, and just got used to, they would throw the bricks, he would catch them. So that's how he got very good at, you know, the hand-eye and reaching wow. and all that. They, and, it, and it just really comes back full circle. The day after the 49ers win the Super Bowl, Jerry Rice is not only running hills, but working on, right? Yeah. Really working on his, and it's just, it's it's unfathomable. You would think you just reached the pinnacle of your career. You just yeah. won the Super Bowl. Yeah. And the day after you're running hills. I mean, I again, I'm not a fan of his, but Tom Brady just announcing his retirement at a 43, oldest player in the league. Yeah. Doesn't go out of shape, stays in constant shape. And our Atlanta Falcons, he was 10-0 against us. So thank you for giving somebody else a chance. But Ruth, it seems like these individuals just are driven by that strong foundation. They, that is their rock. That is their kind of... Yeah. Always go back to it because it always works. Look, we were talking about beforehand about writing a book. You've written a bunch of books. I've written books. We have the same structure when we write books. We have our outlines. We break them up. We, you know, each piece that we're going to put in, and then we feel we we know what works. We know what works for us, mm -hmm. and we always go back to it. We write in the morning. It's those same things over and over and over again. It's work. It's really working for us. We're not going to try and change it, and we know that that consistency is going to help us. Absolutely. So I'm eagerly awaiting number four. Number four. So all the billionaires, right? Mark Cuban, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, they're notorious for reading three to eight hours a day. But it's not the reading that's made them billionaires. It's opening their minds up to new knowledge, right? They are making connections that other people don't see yet. They're seeing something in one industry and figuring out how to make these slight modifications and use it in another industry. That's what made them so successful, opening their mind up to new knowledge. Now, you and I are authors of books. We also love reading, but there are other ways that you can learn. You can read books, you can read articles, you can read blogs, you can listen to podcasts, you can watch webinars, LinkedIn Lives, LinkedIn Learning courses. The possibilities are endless. They're endless. But you have to see what it is that, that you prefer, how you prefer learning, and then double down on that. Because all of these people, despite their Nobel Prizes and all their big medals, they're constantly learning. And it's not in the classroom. Now, some of the ways that they learn in addition to all of that is they learn by talking to people. And they surround themselves with a team of mentors, a team of people who believe in them more than they believe in themselves. Now, if it's good enough for the Nobel Prize winners and the astronauts and the Olympic champions, why would the rest of us think we don't need it? Yeah, I'm baffled by that. And especially you, you, you meet, I don't know about you, I meet leaders all the time. I'm busy. I'm an operator. I'm heads down focused on my PL or I'm focused on the demands of the executive team and the board of me. And I don't have time for that. 
yeah. and my comment is if you don't have time to learn, you don't have time to grow. You don't, you're mm. not, not only that, again, I, 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 it's amazing what I've learned over the years from my kids. Having your kids observe you doing the behavior that you want to instill yeah. in them yeah. makes it real. Makes it so you just can't talk about books. You got to have that. A, you got to read. You got to have them see you read. That's talk right. Talk about what you read at dinner table. That's go to right. the library together. And that's how you build, a, a, a again, a culture of reading. And it's not the goofy, you know, book clubs and some of these things that people do that's not sustainable. It's really the broader learning that you're referring to. That's right. Can you imagine what dinner's like at the Gotian dinner table? <laughs> right. They're like, Mom, stop. Mom, <laughs> Mom you're embarrassing me. <laughs> like, that's our job. That's what we do really well. That's right. <laughs> uh, so, so is there a connective tissue that, unless you tell me otherwise, these high performers do these four really consistently. Is there something that ties them all together? Is there something that, can I just do two out of the four and nope. still be a high achiever? Nope. You have to do all four and you have to do all four in unison. You can't say the first of the month I'm doing this one, then I'm going to switch to that one. No, you have to do all four. But if you had to start with one, you start with that first one. Because the mm. second you figure out what your passion is, everything falls into place. Everything. Okay, so I want to build on that. Uh, I'm a, again, I'm a, I'm a PNL leader. I'm a, I'm a team manager. I, I've got a group of people. I, I love, and, and a lot of what you're talking about is personal accountability and yeah. kind of investing in your own personal professional growth, right? Love okay. that. By the same token, I want to raise the bar on yeah. my team. Yeah. And I love that you've got the resources and you've got a buffet. And where do I start? How do I, how do I get the team to embrace these ideas and to really? Uh, commit to them and and hold themselves, if not each other accountable for this type of a growth, this type of a all in type commitment to that to that success. It's all about finding that that calling, right? It's getting back to your why, mm. figuring out why you want to do this. Why are you here? Why are you working on this? Let's tap into that. And once we can tap into that, everything there's it's just such a ripple effect. So, so does the why become that that lighthouse? Does the why become that guiding light of what Absolutely. you know what we're what we're trying to do here? Absolutely, you have to get back to people's why. Why are you Why are you doing this? Why did you choose this profession of all the professions you could have picked? Why this one? And as soon as we remember that, and sometimes people need reminders of that, mm. it leads the way. But you know what? It's success and this high achievement is the best kind of infection to get. Mm. It's contagious and it's infectious. And this is what we want to spread, not COVID. I know. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I know you and I both are passionate about formal and informal mentoring, the roles of a mentor. Talk about role of a mentor in this success factor, because you also said, you know, between their learning and their purpose and these high achievers have mentors. They they learn a that. Team of them. Yeah, and they 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 find Yodas and they find Sherpas that kind of guide their journey. Right. And remember, these are people who believe in you more than you believe in yourselves. Mm. And actually, Kathy Cram's work out of Boston, she really highlights that mentors have two roles. The first one is to help you with your career. And the second one is to help you with the psychosocial support, right? When you're feeling down and things aren't working out and you're so deep inside the jar, you can't even read the label. So how is it that 
um, so you need to find these mentors who can do that, but you want mentors from different fields because you're always going to need something very, very different. You want these guides by your side. Now, Nicole Stott, who's one of the astronauts who I interviewed, she had worked at NASA previously and she met many astronauts. And one day she said, that kind of looks interesting. I wonder if I can do it. I wonder if I should do it. So her mentor said, fill out the application, <laughs> fill it out. And she filled it out and she didn't get in. And the next time that they had to apply, he approached her and he said, fill it out. And then she got in. And now she's an astronaut. She's been to space a bunch of times. She's even been in a Super Bowl commercial. So <laughs> all is well with the world. I love it. I love it. So that brings up a good point. Uh, first time she filled out application, she didn't get in. Yeah. How do high achievers deal with setbacks? Because we all have them. We all stumble, fail, yeah. right? What, what, what happens when they scrape their knees? Oh, they fail just like the rest of us. But you know what? For them, it's actually okay because they understand that within a failure, there's a lesson to be learned. And they're always looking for that lesson. So while some people are afraid of success and other people are afraid of failure, the high achievers fear not trying more than they fear failing. They're okay with the failure because they know that they'll, they'll, there'll be a lesson there for them to understand. But not trying, that's quitting. They don't quit. They don't quit at the, before they even get to the starting line. No, absolutely not. You have to fear not trying more than you fear failing. I love that. So that don't don't have regret for having not tried it and That's not right. approached that subject. Or I've always taught my kids the answer is always no if you don't ask. Right. That's right. If you, if you don't, you know, if you don't go after that promotion, if you don't go ask for that broader set of responsibilities, if you don't step up and say, I'm willing to do this, even though if I don't know how to do it, that's right. You're never gonna get that chance. That's so, right. so I love that. So that the fear of not trying outweighs the fear of failing. Every time. So how does somebody find a great mentor? How do you mm. ensure, again, everybody's busy, right? My manager, mm -hmm. the other executives, ooh, I was on a Zoom meeting and I saw this really bright woman or a, a more seasoned executive present and I want to be like her. Mm -hmm. I, how do I go find those great mentors? How do you find that perfect mentor, right? Guess what? They don't exist because nobody's perfect. Not even you, not even me. Nobody's perfect. But what you can do is you can create a version of perfect with all of these different people where each one has different attributes mm. that you will need at different parts of what you're doing. So for example, my mentoring team includes people from medicine, science, education, business, law, military, I'm missing something. There's one more. But the point is when I wrote the blueprint, the blueprint, the book proposal for the book, for the success factor, I shared it with one of my mentors who had written several books in the past mm -hmm. because she knows what to put in a book proposal. She could give me honest feedback. She has my best interest. She wants it to be as strong as it can be. I did not show the book proposal to my mentor who's a lawyer. He's never written a book in his life. Mm. So he that's not the guidance that I need. So you really need to have this collective of people. And one thing I will tell you is that you should never approach someone and say, will you be my mentor? Don't ever use the M word. Mm. 
Because what happens when you're asking someone to be your mentor, you're asking them to take on another job. And I just hear that and I just get exhausted because who has time for that? Yeah. But what if you asked me, I had a question I was wondering if I could just get your perspective on something. I know you have experience in this. Yeah. That I can do. What can a mentee do for a mentor? How, how do you reciprocate their kindness? How do you reciprocate their wisdom? I don't even think you should reciprocate. I think you should instigate. I think you should be the first one to offer something. Mm. And I always feel that mentees have a lot to offer, a lot to offer. So, for example, when I was coming up, um, it, it, this was, God, at least 10 years ago, I was at a conference and um, recruiting students. And for any of you who've ever been to a conference like that, you stand there in a booth, you're saying the same thing over and over and over and over again for three days. And you hope that day three, you sound as excited and less robotic than you did on day one. Yeah. Meanwhile, I walk into, it's, you know, in a big convention center and there's on an easel, there's this big board with what I thought was the pound symbol. It's a hashtag and a picture of a blue bird, Twitter. Now I had no idea what this meant. And I'm walking around right in my booth, trying to be all excited, but everyone's staring at their phone. And I'm like, what is happening? So I actually called somebody over who was a generation younger than me. I was like, what is happening here? And he introduced me to Twitter. <laughs> and I'm looking at his phone and I'm looking at the conversations. And I realized that the conversation I'm having one-on-one -on -one with people, there's one to a thousand happening. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so much more powerful. So mm. he gave me a whole tutorial. He was mentoring it, me on it for a long time. That night I went and on the floor of my hotel room in St. Louis, Missouri, I created my first Twitter account. I didn't even have a picture. I had an egg. That was my picture. That was it. Sure. But he had taught me, you know, subsequently to that more and more about the power of it. Now, I am also helping a Nobel Prize winner with the marketing of his book right? He knows science, he got Nobel, right? But I know a little bit about book marketing. Yeah. So that's something that I can offer him as well. I think everyone has something that they can offer someone, everybody, you and have something you're good at. Regrettably, the, the younger generation than mm -hmm. us feels like they don't feels like, you know, I, I'm working with a new partner who's teaching me how to fly fish. And I'm working with somebody else who's Right. They've traveled extensively and they're giving you travel tips. And you just yeah. you never know the experiences you've had and the things you've done would be of interest and value to somebody else. So don't underestimate that. Right. That's right. That's By the right. way, we've also created formal reverse mentoring opportunities where the 20 and 30 year olds are teaching the 70 year olds about NFTs and about <laughs> cryptocurrency and a lot of those interesting topics that are generational and Definitely. they're they're more. Again, that digital native, if you will, environment. So, Ruth, you and I also, something else you have in common, we're passionate about this idea of grit and perseverance. And just, you said it earlier, you don't, high achievers, they don't quit. They don't, right? You you hit a wall, you figure out a way around it, under it, over That's it, right. through it. <laughs> Talk about the role of perseverance in yeah. that success. Yeah. Well, you have to, because remember, it's your calling. So you're not going to let these barriers hold you back because this is why you were put on this earth. This is your calling. Mm. So they always add the word yet. I haven't figured it out yet. 
What is the strategy I need? How do I need to do this? Who do I need to talk to? What needs to happen? They're always trying to see how they can be in the driver's seat and be in control of that situation. Mm. For them, it's almost a challenge, right? You reject me, you turn me down, whatever it is, I have to figure out how I can convince you what I need to do, right? How am I going to overcome this challenge? And they do it. And they will get the information from anybody, even if the person is a generation younger. So for example, one of the people in the book is Dr. Chris Walsh. He's a physician scientist. He's head of a, a division at um, Harvard. And he's a top-notch neuroscientist. And he needed to know, to learn molecular biology for a project he was working on. And he didn't know molecular biology all that well. So he actually went to someone who graduated from college two years earlier, a division chief at Harvard, getting something from a 24-year-old. But he said, I needed to know it. This guy knows it better than me. Teach me everything you know. And that's what they did. Mm. So it's figuring out the challenge, but looking for solutions and being open to learning from anybody. That's what's key. And, and you you brought it up. There's some executives that you and I have met that that uh, exactly right. Learn from being around others. Learn from that hands-on, you know, experience, knowledge, where they've been, what they've done, and they've been incredibly successful leveraging the relationships mm -hmm. to kind of be that knowledge engine for them. So, so talk about uh, another tool that I saw in your book that caught my attention was the goal audit. That's right. Tell Definitely. me a little about what the goal audit is about. So the goal audit. Um, you know, we always have our goals. And people have these long, extravagant goals. My goals fit on a three-by-three Post-it note, and I have it on the light right in front of me, right right in front of my desk. And every time I'm asked to take on something else, another responsibility, or yeah. sit on another committee, or task force, or special project, or any of those things, I look at my goal. Does it help my goal, or does it detract from my goal? If it'll help my goal, I'm in, or at least I'll consider it. If I'm not, mm, I need to be convinced. Now, if you're working with an organization and you need to be a good citizen, yes, you need to do some of those, but you don't need 20 something of them. And what happens is I ask people to write what their goals are. And then I ask them to list every single committee they're on and task force and special project. And I get double digits. And I say, how many of those are related to your goal? Mm, two. If it doesn't align, you must resign. I love what it. I tell them. I love it. Okay, so now I want to know, and I want to share with our audience: where can they learn more about you? Where can they learn more about this book? Would love to uh, give them a chance to go pick it up, and I would highly, highly encourage our audience: go grab a copy of it. I've got a copy of it. There is, we've covered, I think, at a very high level surface of the depth that's there. So much. Um, the book is called The Success Factor. And wherever you love buying books, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Walmart, Target, independent bookstores, it is there. Wherever you are in the world, you can find right on my website. It'll tell you where you can get the book, ruthgotian.com slash book. And Gotian is G-O-T-I-A-N, ruthgotian.com slash book. And all the social media is just my name. Perfect. For our audience, if you joined us late, I would highly, highly encourage you to go back and, and watch this episode, listen to this episode. Dr. Ruth Gautian, Chief Learning Officer and Assistant Professor of Education in Anesthesiology and former Assistant Dean of Mentoring 
and Executive Director of Mentoring Academy at Well Cornell Medicine. Ruth, thank you for your time, for your insights. I cannot wait to see you again, hopefully around this pandemic in person instead of our virtual Thinkers 50 green room. (laughs) (laughs) That was great, though. (laughs) It was a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.